So hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Digital Doctor uh, Conference. Um, super exciting episode today um, and I'm going to do a few introductions first. So we've got our normal culprits with us. That's me, Ed Wallet. We've got Stephen Wing. Say hello, Stephen. Hello. And uh, Wai Kiong Wong, otherwise known as the trainee. <laughs> Funny. Hi there. <laughs> and we are really, really excited to have the, uh, the two guys behind the, the Medicine IO podcast uh, with us today, uh, Josh and Jason. So that's really difficult to say, actually, Josh and Jason. I'm going to struggle with that, like, if I put you two names together, the whole thing. But anyway, introduce yourselves. So uh, I'm uh, Jason Newland. I appreciate uh, the welcome, Ed, and i um, excited to be here with you all. I'm a uh, pediatric infectious diseases doctor, and uh, med- I'm uh, the medical director of patient safety and systems reliability at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm Josh Harrigan. I am a third-year medical student at the University of Kansas, which is in Kansas City, Kansas. And I'm currently doing uh, my internal medicine rotation right now. Fantastic. And maybe we should just say how we managed to sort of hook up and how this this came about, really. Uh, because I, we weren't really aware. Um, I, I certainly wasn't aware of, of you guys um, until, you know, I think you got in contact through Twitter um, on one of our episodes and... You know, and it, I was amazed because, you know, we're doing something fairly similar, you know, just in different, you know, you, you guys in the United States and us over here in, uh, in, in London, in the UK. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how you can be doing similar things and not really know. Um, so maybe it might be worth um, uh, either Josh or, or Jason saying just a bit about Medicine.io um, for our listeners. Well, so Medicine.io is a podcast that Jason and I started essentially to discuss a lot of the same topics that you guys are discussing, um, kind of how technology and social media are playing into medicine and changing medicine today. And, and the, so, so let me just stop him right now. What you have to realize is Josh, again, is like he's a, the trainee on this side of the pond. <laughs> and I'm, I actually have a job. Um, and I'm trying to work. And Josh comes to me one day and says, hey, dude, we need to start a podcast. And I'm like, really? Like, why should I be starting a podcast right now? He's like, well, that's the way to go. So he says, hey, listen to this. Listen to that. And so mind you, I am not the techie one of this group. I'm being drugged along by Josh. But thought, hey, this could be fun. I love to talk. Let's talk about this stuff since I can actually give maybe some real world um, practicality to my good fellow trainees idealism sometimes with this. So I th- we thought – why not sit around every Saturday, Sunday and talk for 45 minutes to an hour about what's going on? And, and so it was are, born out of him. You guys are super disciplined. Like you, every week you got a podcast out, you know, um, have you done eight, epi- eight episodes now? Yeah, we have. And that's purely because both of us are incredibly undisciplined. And if we didn't do it every week, it would be done. Yeah, we, it would, we'd go a month without it. So You'd have a podcast like ours, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you guys have a lot of interesting things that can tide you over, like the coding school and all, you know these other different things. We de- we all we have is talking. Um, but but Josh, how did you come come stumble across the digital doctors? Because really, it's Josh was the one trying to figure out what else was out there. 
So I've been I've been looking around at trying to figure out you know who has podcasts, who's doing medically related podcasts, and especially uh, who's doing kind of just general conversation podcasts uh, about medicine rather than like the medical journals which, you know, basically do interviews or talk about research publications and stuff like that. And I, I wish that I could remember how I stumbled upon uh, the Digital Doctors podcast. But it's one of those things where you're searching around for stuff and you just happen upon it. And I listened to one of the episodes. And the bleep I, episode. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we were rolling. I mean, it was it was awesome. Yeah, and I listened to one of the episodes and kind of read some of the stuff that you guys were doing. I was like, oh, my God, these guys are basically doing the the same podcast that, that kind of we want to do. And we and started like, at the same time, pretty much. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. Roughly. I think you guys are a little bit before us, but yeah. yeah. It's amazing how these trends just sort of, you know, this, this is a very hot topic. I mean, certainly in the UK at the moment, and we'll get to this in a minute, but, you know, IT literacy uh, for doctors is a huge thing at the moment. Um, and it's 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 it perhaps the same with you guys, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And especially it seems like here in the United States that a lot of it is centered not so much around the the technical aspects of it, but a lot of discussion about social media and medicine and how doctors are starting to use uh, Twitter, Facebook, and also other tools like text messaging to uh, to start connecting more and more with their patients, which has been going on uh, in its early stages, I'd say probably since like the mid-2000s, yeah. but has really like become a mainstream media. One of our good friends, Natasha Bergert, was just on the NBC Nightly News, which is our national news over here, on a segment on Saturday talking about social or talking about texting her patients. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. You know, after we first we did our first episode where we just basically had horrible conversation about ourselves, which so it was like the worst episode known to man. Don't listen to episode yeah, one. Episode one it, please, it's terrible. It's terrible. And uh, but that week we got asked to go on to our local national public radio station mm-hmm. to talk about social media with Natasha, which we were like, she asked us to come on with her. And we're like, this is great. Um, and so we got, that was like our kickoff right after we did our first episode, which happened to be just quite lucky coincidence. Wow. That's, yes. that's quite a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know how well we did, but uh, you know, we had Natasha, thankfully she's awesome and helped us a ton. The thing that quite amazing, isn't it? That the, the kind of doing stuff like this can trigger a loads and loads of different good stuff in your life and there's no way to kind of predict where these things are going and i really find it kind of amazing that the amount of people you meet just on twitter or something like that or doing a podcast and you meet so many different people more walks of life and it's great completely agree I think the thing that really struck me when listening to some of your podcasts was the kind of similar challenges that you face over there as we do here as well. Um, when you talked about secure messaging, when you talk about you know patient list issue and some of the frustrations that you face on your day-to-day work, it, you can kind of relate to it so much even though, you know, arguably the health system, the way we are educated, the way healthcare is paid and financed in the two countries are actually so different. You're absolutely right. It it, it is striking that while we have, you know, worlds apart ways of paying for our health care, we do have the same stuff that goes down to the patient care aspects where we're trying to now figure out how technology 
should improve our care. And and Josh, you know, now who's just getting into, you know, into the wards and seeing all the patients and is starting to deal with these, you know, um, electronic health records. Mm-hmm. And he's he's cussing every day coming home saying this is ridiculous how these things are put together and and i and my understanding is don't isn't cerner a big time player in the uk as a health record system is that true or not yeah certainly so So, you know in in, and i guess one big difference here in the uk is that we separate our health system a lot into uh primary care and secondary care so in terms of the primary care i guess what you call primary care practitioners or family practitioners, and we call them general practitioners. Cerner is not a big player at all. And um, and the biggest players here are companies which are UK companies such as EMIS. But in uh, hospitals and secondary care, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, Cerner is, is massive over here. And Epic is starting to actually come to start bidding. Uh, and I understand Epic is doing incredibly well over in the States. Okay, if you know I'm this... I'm going to be a good chair now. I'm going to, I'm going to take us back onto the schedule before we get too into oh. it. <laughs> there's a schedule? Okay, good. I love, there's a schedule? There's what? a schedule. You see, everyone's so enthusiastic. You just want to just go for it. But I'm going to take us back. So both of us, both of our, our groups, you know, physicians in the UK uh, and the US and worldwide are increasingly interested in uh, IT literacy. So how doctors can better use digital tools, social media uh, to improve efficiency um, and patient care. Um, I guess what I think we should start by doing and trying to discuss a little bit about you know, what the differences are in terms of IT literacy needs, what the challenges are. Um, but first of all, let's sort of discuss what is IT literacy in healthcare? What does that actually mean? You guys go first. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's give Stephen a chance because, you know, he's, he's dying to say something. Oh, no, but you guys haven't said anything. Usually I'll just summarize whatever you said, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think there's different levels of IT literacy. Um, I think IT is a tool to help doctors get things done. And what I really liked about your last episode, guys, um, was that you were talking about the, the electronic health record and how it kind of mimics the paper record. But the paper record is something that existed as a tool to help doctors find out what happened before. And I don't think at the moment IT in its current state helps doctors in the way that it could. So I don't think we re- have really realized our potential in that sense. So in one sense, I think digital literacy means for doctors is that they should be able to use the tools that they, they have available for them to do their daily job. But also, more than that, I think digital literacy should be about doctors learning about what's available in technology and trying to apply some of that to solve problems for themselves. Does that make any sense? And I think, I think it makes perfect sense, Stephen. I guess the way I think about it is that digital literacy is about understanding what it means when data is being captured in a digital form. What does that enable? What opportunities does that create? Because what we do not want is a creation of systems that just recreate what we can do in paper. The thing about digital is that it can do things that paper can't dream of doing. And and that I think understanding that it can be a little bit harder than we initially care to uh, think about. Even thinking about things like the email inbox and the inbox tray that people used to put paper paper into, managing them 
it can be incredibly different. And the fact that email is digital creates things that things that paper cannot dream to do. And to me, that's what digital literacy means. Over to you guys. <laughs> I think, well, I think both thoughts are spot on as far as, you know, trying to define uh, digital literacy for the doctor. I think another thing to think about is that, and I think we deny it or just haven't really thought about it much in medicine, is that medicine is an information science. Mm-hmm. You're gathering information from a patient and you're trying to correlate that that information with uh, what they tell you, test results, um, and other data. And really the digital tools, uh, like Y. Kong was saying, was they're there to to facilitate that. And I think we really need to think more and more about information science and bring that more and more into medicine. And that's what the health IT uh, world is, is helping us do. And, you know, as physicians, I think it's important for us to develop that literacy so that we can, you know, speak on their level and bring in more and more of those tools to facilitate our day-to-day work. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. I think the one thing I would add to part of this health IT literacy um, is that I think we have to even go beyond just what's going to help our jobs, but I think what is how do we, um, you know, leverage this technology to really get out to the patients and so that the patients can and families and could be utilizing this along with us. Um, you know, now that there is more of these care coordination models in the United States right now, you know, we're starting to go into this payment structures of this capitated uh, payment, meaning, you know, the companies or the government's going to give a health plan X number of dollars. And this probably is similar to what you guys have already in that you're only going to have that amount of money. And we know that, you know, 20% of our patients make up 80 to 80% of our costs of our total healthcare system, and they're not going to pay for things. And how are we going to coordinate all that care you know, with as bad of society as health that we, the bad health society we have, um, to be able to follow and leverage this technology to make our care better and and, and more efficient. This is this is a really important challenge, um, and and I see that this we have to utilize the, the the amazing technologies that are out there to do that. For me, so much of this goes back to something which Wai Kyung said very eloquently, which I'm now going to fail to summarize in in our first episode, but it was really that, you know, we have these tools, these amazing tools that we use in our personal lives. Um, You know, the the technology revolution over the past 10 years in terms of personal um, software um, has just been unbelievable. And we use so many great tools, or I I certainly do, and I know that my other um, hosts on this podcast do. Um, And we use those to get stuff done for ourselves. But when we then go into an NHS hospital, and we have to try and request a blood test or look at a patient's blood test results or look at some imaging or something like that. It's like going back 15 years. <laughs> um, yeah. And and that is, it's just so, frustra- so frustrating to have this, this divide between those two things because you know, you just know that the vision is always there. Of, it could be so much better. I think that was one of the things, one of the comments that sold me on your guys' podcast because I couldn't, I was jumping up and down saying I agree with that 100%. Why why in the medical field are we so far behind when it comes to these tools and technology? 
Yeah, when compared to other disciplines like physics, you know, medicine has often been the place where innovations in physics and biochemistry and all sorts of other disciplines are played out. Mm. And that's not the same for IT. And I, I really don't know why that is. I've got some ideas, but um, and I'm sure it's probably different for different countries. But guys, why do you think that health uh, healthcare IT is so far behind? I mean, do you think there's a difference between the US and UK? My gut is no. I, my gut is no. I mean, I, but I think part of it, and I don't know if this is true, but you know, when we sit around and and, and go talk to people about we're doing a podcast or we're talking about Twitter um, and how we think it can impact, you know, healthcare and how this, you know, these are these are just basically social media techniques that we think could help get out the word about how to improve things. You know, people look at in the medical field, look at you, roll their eyes and say, well, why do we need that? Why do I need to know from a Twitter feed why you're going to the bathroom? Um, you know, there's no, there's no sense of stepping out of the comfort zone. And we find, you know, many people that are there are flat laggards and trying to think of better ways of doing it. And the, the most common excuse we hear is, well, I don't have time for that. I have too many other things I'm doing. Instead of well, why don't I make time to see how this might improve the healthcare, um, and and wh- why that is, or have we not created a system to to encourage that research and development in along the, this line? Um, I think is is a problem, and and when we're leaving, you know, the development of our health record systems and some of these tools to people that have never been in a hospital or ever seen a patient. I mean, this is what goes back to why I loved your coding episode so much and why I keep arguing with so many people about why doctors should have some knowledge of how to code. And it goes back to what you said, I think, in in the last episode or the episode before, that you think it should be part of the undergraduate curriculum, just like you study mathematics, uh, you know, chemistry, uh, basic biology, not necessarily human biology. You know, I, I, I could not agree with that more. I think it is so important now that we have IT literacy as practicing physicians um, it's almost as important as, as knowing, although this probably isn't very important, knowing the molecular structure um, of organic chemistry or, or something like that. I mean, how one can argue in the modern healthcare system that, you know, that is more important necessarily than knowing the basics of IT and having digital literacy, I, I don't understand. I, I think it's just so important. Now, I mean, you don't, can, in, can I just, sorry. sorry, can I just interject? Now, let's say you have a generation of doctors who do get IT and do get digital. Now, how how does that then make, you know, companies like the big EMR companies improve their software? Why would they improve their software just because, you know, us doctors understand digital more? What, what would make them do more? Because at the moment, the budget for development is, I guess, relatively small compared to their budget for things like marketing and contract negotiations and things like that. There are several EMRs in the UK which have completely stopped funding research and development of their platform because I guess they don't see that doing that actually drives up sales. Hey, Wai Kong, you didn't realize that this podcast was really just the beginning of our own electronic health record between the two countries, did you? <laughs> This is where it's, this is the genesis point. This is the genesis. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, why are we doing this? <laughs> I can give some perspective on that because I supposedly run a medical IT software company. Um, Perfect. You're the problem. <laughs> I'm the problem, yeah. <laughs> so I think 
I can just give you my own experience. So the, traditionally the model works and this is, might not be the same because I'm fairly, I'm a fairly small company and by definition, therefore slightly more agile than, than most. Um, but you know, a, a client will say, oh, I've got this great idea for uh, an, an app and it's going to, you know, make my life easier. It's going to make my patients care better. Uh, so I go and I sit down with them and they start telling me their idea. And as soon as they start explaining it, the, the sort of IT side of me hits in and I start think, you know, thinking of all the problems that that's going to involve and in actually creating. Uh, and then start thinking about all the integration problems of actually getting that working with their current hospital system. I think we should talk about that, about that a bit later as well. That's a huge issue. Um, but the difficulty is, is the translation. And this is where the, the, the problem happens. So physicians really who sit in these steering groups telling the developers um, what they want, don't have a lot of time to devote to that traditionally. So I maybe get one or two meetings if I'm lucky with the key stakeholders who are going to be using the system, who are physicians. And this is the same with most other um, healthcare uh, IT providers as well. That we then have to go away and make a lot of assumptions about how something should work. And even if we wanted to then communicate those assumptions back to the clinicians, often we, they wouldn't engage with us. Um, and I mean, the whole reason I left medicine and now run a company that does that is because being a physician myself, um, I don't, I'm not really sure that sums me up very well, to be honest, but being a qualified doctor myself, um, I kind of thought that, you know, maybe I would bring to it, my assumptions might be a bit better than just someone who just had software training. Um, but that is the problem I see it over and over again, is that these, the short meetings, complicated specifications the company then disappears and builds their system but the actual end users are not involved con consistently and mm. therefore for me the advantage of digital literacy for doctors is a shared language so a doctor suddenly is able to one explain better in a language that the software developer is more likely to understand what their requirements are and two and this is i think probably even more important they're able to imagine what might be possible. And I don't, you know, since Facebook came along, everybody knows how to use a web app, you know, but the, and I don't mean, you know, I use apps on my computer all the time. Therefore I know how software's put together. If you know a little bit more than that, then suddenly you can start thinking, wow, that's possible. So why don't we do that for this case? Why don't we do that for this particular problem? Why don't we do this for that? And that is the advantage I think of digital literacy. One of the huge advantages, you suddenly know what's possible and great innovation comes from that knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's certainly true. I mean, IT and, and digital technology is only a tool to help us do what we're supposed to do, which is look after patients. And you need to know how to use it first and foremost. But I think, as you say, Ed, the, the real benefit from, from having people that are more literate than, than, than just being able to do their job is that, they can drive innovation. I think that's the, that. That's where we need to be looking for, and that, that's key. what I would like. Yeah, the yeah. key is driving innovation. It's really to drive it and push the push the envelope so that we're innovating things. Because you know you got to fail ten, eleven, twelve, hundred times to hit that one, um, to hit something that's big. And I think that's so important. You can't you can't quit trying to do this because because really the our especially in the US our healthcare system is is dying for this. I mean we need mm. this to improve our care. Cuz at, at this rate, I mean, you know, they talk about the financial collapse in 2008 and which was a huge deal in the United States. And I read a book called The Trillion Dollar Meltdown and and in that book they actually spend 2 
two pages discussing how the, the U.S. healthcare system is just like that. I mean, we, we could have any minute, you know, the healthcare system in our country, the United States, could in some respects have some kind of collapse because we, because we have no idea where the money is. And, and we're not creating ways to take care of our patients in an, in, in an efficient manner. And so the innovation is, is key. And I just think I'm just in adding something more to add uh, in what you said earlier. And the thing about healthcare is that healthcare is constantly changing. And the thing that I find with electronic record systems and stuff, whenever you sit down with specifications, there's this, this assumption that that is not going to change. So when people set out a budget to try to procure or create a system, they don't think about the fact that this needs to adapt to the constant challenges that healthcare throws at it. And it can be incredibly unpredictable. And and that's why I think like looking in my current hospital, for example, we have software that was designed in 2006 that we are still using and which has never very, very improvement made on despite the fact that the requirements of it have far exceeded what it's originally designed for. And so whenever a hospital goes out to buy a software system, they think they are buying Microsoft Word or, or Excel or something. What they forget is that they actually are <coughs> buying a... Oh, what's that sound? Um, buying it's our mascot. It's our dog. <laughs> he, he, he agrees with you. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. <laughs> oh, my flow has been interesting. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you're when you're partnering with a, a software firm to give you a solution, it's just it's not buying a product. In some ways, it's actually entering into a, a form of marriage or relationship that needs to respond to changes. And I think that a lot of the you know management and people doing software don't quite get that as well. But yeah, there's that's also that's real problem. True. Go on, Stephen. Sorry, this is going to be a no, no. I was I was just going to 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 applaud that and and say that. But also, not, not only does medicine change extremely fast, and we all know because you know the books change extremely fast as well, and we have to keep up with that. But IT changes. Probably even faster, Ed, and and you know that as well as I do. The the kind of technology that people use for IT stuff, security problems, the actual ways of doing things change incredibly fast year on year. Yeah, but I think there's there's a problem with the companies. The companies are now used to this, um, and I, I mean I've seen this in the in the year and a bit that I've been running my company, is that there's a huge effort to 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 get into the door. So you you really try hard on the procurement, mm. and you get the contract. Um, and usually you end up charging very little actually for building the, the initial product. All the fees actually then come in the in the maintenance and the mm-hmm. and and the upgrading and the and the changing to needs. Um, because when you build a software system, you have to make very core decisions at the very beginning about what your data structures are going to look like, how the application is going to work, and in complicated applications that gets well very complicated. Um, and with great complexity comes a great inertia as well and the ability, inability to change. So when the, the healthcare provider then comes back and says, well, actually, we've completely rethought the way we want our electronic patient health record to work, you almost have to rebuild the system from scratch or even worse, have to adapt the system that you have um, to, to meet that need. And that can be very, very challenging, actually, mm. in software and with with challenge comes time and with time comes a lot of money. And as you said, a lot of provider, a lot of um, healthcare providers think that they're just buying Microsoft word. Mm. Um, and it's completely not the case um, with most 
you know, healthcare systems, they do require constant um, agile process, you know, constant user groups, constant testing, constant, you know, how can we make this better? How can we drive it forward? But at the end of the day, if the healthcare provider is not going to pay you for that, um, then that's, that's really challenging to do. So I think I've been thinking a lot about this lately because so many frustrations with the electronic medical record. And I think I don't know how to make it happen. I don't know if it will ever happen. But the only way to speed up innovation and keep up with uh, changing technologies outside of the medical world in terms of uh, designing and adapting electronic medical records is for hospitals, which currently use proprietary medical record systems in proprietary data formats that are completely closed systems is to store their patient data in what I guess I will call dumb databases, just these very basic file formats, and then try to create a market for companies to come in and design systems that can interpret, display mm. that data in different ways. And I'll use Twitter as an example, uh, even though Twitter's kind of changing from this. But in the past, you know, Twitter uh, had their API and anybody could create a uh, Twitter client on the desktop, on an iOS, on an Android device. And what it did was it would take all that Twitter data and display it in whatever format you wanted. You know, it could make the text huge. It could reformat, you know, how you would reply to tweets and stuff like that. So I think what needs to happen is for, you know, our electronic medical record databases to uh, somehow become more open. And that's a really difficult proposition at this point in time, given the pervasiveness of the proprietary formats and the, the huge contracts that they sign uh, for the, the record systems. But I think a small glimmer of hope in the United States is uh, our, our uh, initiatives for interoperability between the uh, different record systems. Because if they create uh, protocols for transferring and translating data, then it could become theoretically possible to create different clients to that you know a, a doctor could use to, to see that data. What I'm envisioning is that someday Jason and I could walk into the same hospital with the database, you know, a dumb database, and we could use two completely different clients to see our patient data. Yep. And it would be structured around what we would like to see and how we would like to see it and what works best for our uh, purposes. I think there's a Nobel Prize out there for someone who's able to figure that out in medicine. <laughs> I think I think in slightly kind of a simpler model, I understand that things like the VA and their blue button initiative. I'm not I'm not sure that it's actually physician facing, but patient facing, where where it is structured. I think XML data that they have created and it's open for anyone to be able to build any piece of software to display that patient information back to the patients using whichever and whatever software that they want. And I think there are initiatives called the Smart Platform coming out of Boston and Harvard as well, which they actually have a layer in between uh, a, a database, exactly what you say, and then you can use whatever application and call the API, give me the patient's cholesterol results, give me the patient's date of birth, and you can use whatever software you want uh, uh, to view the information. So I think on that level, 
it's already happening. But the problem is not the new data, it's the old data. So trans getting this, you know, transcribing all of the data that is there into an open, a new open system and getting everybody to do it without breaking the systems that they currently have and rely on on a day-to-day basis is, the, I think, the real challenge. Um, but there's so many different things you need to take care of. I mean, you say it's the old data, Ed, but if you were to scrap all of the data, old data and say, let's just start again, okay, from day one, let's just make sure that everything's electronic from now on. Lo- I'd love that. Yeah, yeah, but what would, what would you choose? Would you choose an SQL database, a NoSQL database, a sort of document-orientated system? Or, you know, how would you store things and how would you account for classifications changing? Well, so, like, I... Hmm? Rather like, I mean, you, you'd have to go through a specification process and it would probably have to be a national one, maybe even a global one. Um, you know, rather like, you know, I'm going to use a coding analogy here, apologies. Um, you know, rather like there's a specification for HTML and a specica- specification for CSS. I'd like to see yeah. a global specification for healthcare data, um, which would essentially describe the way that patient data should be stored. And there are great ways of doing it. You know, you don't have to use relational databases. You can use schemaless databases. Um, of course, you do need rules. Otherwise, people don't know how to tie into an API. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it needs to be almost a global initiative. Yeah, that's true. But look at HTML and look how slowly HTML and the HTML specifications actually evolve. I mean, doesn't that sound a bit similar to the way that the medical IT profession is at the moment? It's not as agile as, as we would like. like. HTML5, I mean, how, how slow has that been in, in, in just like its conception and adoption? Yeah. I don't, no, at the moment you mentioned um, global spe- specification, something in me kind of died. I mean, I just didn't... <laughs> I, 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 was it your pancreas? I, I'm being aspirational. <laughs> I just... It's, it's, that was the dream of the national program of IT in the UK. And I think that was one of the, you know, kind of trying to describe the world um, attempt. That I just don't think it will work. And I think, remember during our conference... Um, Martin Murphy, who is the uh, clinical director for IT in, in in Wales, was saying that maybe you shouldn't try to specify too many things. And, and nationally, they should define really important standards for core things like who is this patient? What are their allergies? But for the other things, I think he feels that there should be quite a bit of flexibility around it. And a standard will emerge, a standard that works, that people will naturally, um, you know, gravitate towards something that works and things will evolve that way. We've been doing that for the past 15 to 20 years. You know, institutions, hospitals have been innovating independently in the IT space, designing their own databases for the last 20 years. And we haven't got any closer to that point. So, guys, is this, is this even possible with as big these companies are? I mean, the Cerners and Epics of the world. I mean, you guys don't know this, but Cerner actually is a Kansas City company. Oh, I mean, it is ginormous. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, and how are they going to let this happen? Hang on. Is that Kansas City, Missouri or Kansas City, Kansas? Uh, I think they're only on the Missouri side. Though they mm-hmm. own, but oh, you guys will like this. I think you'll <laughs> like the next fact i'm going to give you the owner of the uh, of cerner actually owns a major league soccer club wow, wow. yeah <laughs> which one which one uh sporting kansas city yeah the oh local kansas city. the local kansas city professional soccer team i don't think actually you could find three english people less interested in soccer I know. <laughs> oh, that even. Oh, come on! That's what that was part of our hope here. We were going to come to London and go to a soccer, soccer game. game. Well, I'm right next to Chelsea Football Ground, so there we go. 
And have you ever been, Ed? I have been once, but only for the experience. I was nearly bottled, actually. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean? That's when uh, someone takes a bottle, smashes it, and then stabs you in the neck with it. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but, welcome yeah. to London. <laughs> welcome to London. Yeah. Just come. So, so I was, uh, yeah, so I, I went to this match, and of course, Chelsea uh, wears blue, and they were playing Liverpool. Uh, no, yeah. Manchester. Red, red. Liverpool, who wears red. Yeah. And I was sitting in the Chelsea stand. But of course, I was completely ignorant to this, so I turned up in a red jumper. Wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I, just, I could not be more clueless. Um, but I was, I was fairly young at the time, so I think they took pity on me. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Stephen, are you, you're, you're not into, are you into soccer? Football? No, soccer. Soccer? No, 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 no. No, no he's not. You see, you, you've, drawn, you've drawn the unlucky straw here. You know, no, that's okay. That's three, okay. Three Brits who just... No, nothing. Three Brits, and, and, and none of them are, are soccer fanatics. I, I, I'm not Brit. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> what, what do you class yourself as, Waikyong? I'm Malaysian. Trainee. <laughs> Trainee and proud of it. Yeah. It always, our, our podcasts tend to descend into this level. Of yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, because I, I always descend into these type of things. So. <laughs> okay, so good chair needs to take the, the group back. Uh, so... What have we discussed? What does it mean? Uh, what's the problem? Um, some of the challenges. Um, we well, Actually, you've, we've nearly made it through my entire thing, which is a bit bad because we're on 37 minutes and, you know, so, uh, we've got a reputation. I, can I ask a question to Jason, if that's all right? Yeah, um, sure. So, I, because you are in charge of, like, patient safety, is that right? The medical director for patient safety? I am. Yeah. If you, How would you improve the health literacy of your clinicians in your organization uh, with the aim of improving you know, patient safety and systems there? What needs to be done? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, you can so chat from now on, Waikyung. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. No, he cannot chair anymore. That's too good of a question. <laughs> uh, Waikyung, I think it, it's, it's a really important question, though. Um, I, I think what has to be done um, in order for this health liter or the IT literacy to be uh, grabbed a hold of, is there has to be some kind of outcomes associated with some of these things. Because uh, while you know it, doctors and nurses and pharmacists and all these people, again, that I said earlier, this time factor that they don't want to get into it. But if you start bringing it to the patient that hey, if we learn and innovate and utilize this application on this mobile device and our mortality for our hypoplastic left heart children mm. who are known to have a 50% mortality be- between their stage one and stage two surgical procedures drops to 5%. Now, it's a small patient population, mind you. Mm. But when you're at one of these large tertiary care places, that's a big deal. And then you think of all these kids, you just made a difference. That's one way. But how do you, you know, so that's one way to say, hey, look, we involved some um, technology that was allowed us to talk with our patients, communicate, have real-time monitoring. That's one way. The second way, I well, that's, I think, the most important way. The second way is we have, we can't just let the, the electronic health record and the negativity. I mean, in our system, 
and you know we're we're an employee system of six thousand. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you take the nurses, the physicians, the administrators, and you sat them down and said, "Hey, what do you think of the Cerner?" Ninety-five percent will tell you they hate it. The absolute, and most people will. Then, if you go down the street to Ku and ask them, "Hey, what do you think of Epic?" They'll say they hate it. So, how are we ever going to, you know, I, and step back? And the, if you said, "Hey, would you rather go back to the paper system we had?" I, I would suggest fifty percent might say yes. I thirty percent. I think that's generational. Because nobody, nobody in my generation would say go back to paper because we have to work in certain places that still do paper records. And as much as we may loathe the electronic medical record, no way we would want to go back to the paper. Yeah. So, But my current attending would love to go get back to paper, I think. So there, there, there has to be a way to change this perception because I think, I think really if, if we take this – question of healthcare IT literacy and say, what do you um, equate that to? They're going to say the electronic health record because that's where they see technology. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, so to piggyback on what you just said, I think we also, another way to do this is to start framing things as patient safety issues. And I'll go back to the discussion that you guys had and that we had about pagers and bleeping. Mm-hmm. And oh, this is a great yes. Go, this is really <laughs> you know the fact that the fact that you know a patient may be crashing and the nurse pages the on-call resident and has no idea if that page was ever received mm. or read is a patient safety issue yeah, in my mind. Absolutely. And I think we need to we need to start really critically evaluating where kind of some of these gaps lie in our in our technology and framing them that way. It is appalling to me. That in this day and age, that it happens not infrequently where someone says, oh, I never received that page. Or it comes across that they had a hard time getting a hold of somebody because the pager system went down. Um, that it took them an hour or two hours to get a hold of someone to respond. I mean, really? In 2013, that still occurs. It drives me absolutely crazy. And Josh is absolutely right. That's a safety thing, especially with how complex our patients are be, have become. Um, so you know, tying these things uh, is is super important. And I and you know, I think when I, we first did the episode on text messaging and you know security around that, I. Was kind of like, how really? That's what Josh thinks is so important. Um, <laughs> I was like, what the heck? He, who cares? Um, and it's funny when you realize that the trainee actually is way far ahead of you, even though you think you know it. Um, but I, I think he's. Re- I think that's that's right. I think it becomes. It's become more and more clear to me that it is a really important avenue to keep in touch with our patients. Um, and figuring and our colleagues, um, and, and having a secure way of doing that will make our care better because I think we need to have this ability. I should say we have the ability, we have the technology to know right now, if I have a really complex patient at home having some difficulties, I should know that. Um, and it should be able that there's a system in place that you could probably intervene much sooner than you ever could before. Physicians are scared, though, I think. and this is, They are, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, 
there's been a lot of discussion here recently um, because you know the, the the directive has kind of gone out that you know patients should have contact with their fam you know email should be an email contact with their their primary physician their their, their family doctor um, but the outcry has been oh god you know unbelievable oh, I don't want patients to know my email address and all I'll spend my entire day doing is responding to to emails about you know something which you know I don't see as very important. There's a, a high degree of cynicism about that in yep. the UK. It's same in the US. Um, I, I, in in the US, they frame it as it's non-reimbursed time because yeah. we're all about fee for service, and I don't get paid to email my patients, so I'm not going to. Yep. There's yeah. this there's this mechanism now called relative value units or RVUs. Mm. It's basically your production me- measurement. And so if you can't get an RVU out of it, a lot of people are like, no, I don't – Then I'm not going to do that. That's um, a really beautiful phrase. Let me write that down. Non-reimbursed time. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's – I think you know, this takes us back. You know, our last episode, we, we kind of hinted on talking about this documentary that was just um, released or has been released actually over the past three or four months called Escape Fire. And it really gives you a, a true sense, I think, of the American healthcare system and some of the major challenges around that and around this whole notion of see more, see more, see more patients because that's how you're going to stay afloat and that's how you're going to make your money. Um, what is that? Sorry, it's my mistake. I tried to send you a link on the original Escape Fire speech that Don Berwick. Oh, the Berwick did, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that was that was in our show notes for last week. We didn't oh, talk right. about it, but I found it later. And I don't think Jason's actually seen it. I stuck it in there because I was looking for a clip where he explained the whole Escape Fire notion. So. I, I will uh, get it in the show notes. I'm you. You guys have awesome show notes. I know. I must say, we I we have that's Josh rubbish show notes in the entire world. Mainly because I, <laughs> I, I. This is I shouldn't really be admitting this, but I, I, <laughs> I built the um, the website that that runs Digital Doctor and. The, the, our podcasting bit is just so elementary in terms of adding additional functionality. Um, and it's so difficult to enter show notes. Um, but I've been inspired by you guys. I'm going to spend some time after this evening and, you know, get, get my code on. And, uh, I, I wish I can't, I wish I could take some credit for that, <laughs> but I will put that in the show notes. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it looks great. I haven't seen it. It's on iTunes. I can get it. Oh yeah. You got to see it. it well, it, well it, it obviously means more to us here, but uh, I, I think it would. It gives you an interesting insight into this, and obviously Don Berwick um, is an amazing. You know, he's a pediatrician, um, mm-hmm. and with his IHI work, and is you know obviously now well known internationally for all this work. And it was too bad that um, Congress and everyone was so short sighted in not keeping him on at the uh, at CMS, which is mm-hmm. our Medicaid services in the government. Uh, he kind of became lame duck, and there was no way he was going to be reapproved. Um, and uh, it, it, to me, it was a disappointing, um, disappointing on many levels because he's what really has helped galvanize, I guess, and make people really push toward improving, you know, improving care um, among our for our patients primarily. You know, the great the great irony is is the Escape Fire website is built in Flash. <laughs> That's a kind of metaphor, I think. <laughs> They've done it on purpose. 
Uh, but of course, um, your 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 loss of Don Barrick is our our gain because he's now over here trying to help us improve patient safety in the NHS following the report of something called the Francis Report. There's a report into a scandal in a hospital uh, here in the UK where there were excess deaths and a lot of horrible lack of compassion going on. And he has been um, asked by our government um, to recommend steps to overcome this and make sure it never happens again. That's really great. And, I, I, you know, it makes me curious for you guys that have obviously, you know, you guys practice or have practiced medicine or training to practice medicine there. What is it like when it comes to communication um, around medical errors and um, the transparency of this? I mean, I, I, obviously, it's a little away from our technology focus, but I'm curious. So I think things have changed quite a lot in the last 10 years. And uh, I guess it comes under an umbrella of a term called clinical governance, uh, which I'm... Do you use the same term over there in the US? Um, it's kind of, but I, go on. Let me, let me hear and I'll tell you what we might use instead. Well, clinical governance is just the concept that, you know, how do you make sure that all patients get the best care that an organization can give? And that includes, you know, training, guidelines, learning from your mistakes, reporting the errors, and having a framework to support that. So that has really come a lot in the last 10 years. Um, but then, but and and it's been very topical in the last few months because a lot of, they're talking a lot about whistleblowing. So... Mm-hmm. How do you allow clinicians, uh, managers to speak up about things that are not going well in their hospitals? And and I think there's going to be a law soon to ban um, gagging clauses in contracts. Um, so people feel that if they can't speak up within the organization, they're allowed to go out. So it is it is quite a hot topic here at the moment. Wow. I mean, that that's a, you know, it's a big thing here is around this whole speaking up. Um, and creating a culture within your hospital that allows everybody um, the belief that they can stop something, speak up, and say something. Um, we at our hospital are part of what they call a hospital engagement network. Mm-hmm. So this was um, funded programs from the Center for Medicaid Services to um, help improve care among a bunch of hospitals. So we're in one that's just children's hospitals. And we have, we're, the reason I'm going to Denver is to learn about how to teach people um, s- safety principles, such as speaking up, mm-hmm. um, communicating more effectively, um, being able to allow people to not feel they're going to be punished uh, for trying to help. Uh, and so it's a uh, just, just as is for you guys, it's become a major, major focus. Um, though, despite that, I think it's still very difficult, especially for, say, nurses or medical students or even residents when they see something wrong to actually say something without feeling like they're going to have, you know, be yelled at and sent back, you know, made felt like they're a centimeter tall. I want to throw that back to you, Wake Young. So based on the no-blame culture and, and what you kind of brought out there, what do you think about what's been happening in the UK with the Francis Report and our, our health secretary? Because I'm not sure that we, we're doing all we can for this no-blame culture, and I think that's absolutely key. 
What do you mean, and our health secretary? I didn't quite get that when you threw it in the sentence. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I just think the, kind, the kind of attitudes from that have come out from the recommendations of the Francis Inquiry and the attitudes that I, that I kind of perceive from from our health secretary, um, and that people could be prosecuted for for certain things. Um, I think it's going to be a bit difficult to incorporate that with the no blame culture. Yeah, I don't think that's a very easy answer to this. And I think this is, and I think that's one of Don Barrick's role over here in the in the UK to help figure out how do you actually practically introduce this to, to the NHS organisations up and down the country. I don't know, I don't have a specific answer for that. Yeah. Okay, hmm. I think, should we um, move on uh, almost as a, a sort of, we've had this, some great discussion here and, you know, I... I think we could probably go on for hours. Um, but I think we could perhaps maybe now talk a little bit about, because we both did podcasts on this, about, and this goes back really to IT literacy. And it really is a question of how far one goes into IT literacy as a doctor and the mm. whole learning to code debate. Um, now, just to give a bit of background for people who haven't listened to both episodes. So uh, uh, we, the Digital Doctors, produced an episode, Should Doctors Learn to Code? Um, and then... Um, uh, you, you guys over in, in, in the US did a, a great episode. Um, what was it called? Those three guys. <laughs> yeah. um, I like to get I like to get a little bit creative with the titles. I think those titles are great. I, yeah, I think yeah that I really like your, your your show notes and your titles. Yeah, amazing, mm. <laughs> inspiring. The uh, podcast is crap, but we no, got no, 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 some titles. <laughs> so, sorry, as you can see, the the reason why it's crap. <laughs> so i mean i think i know that you guys had some quite a lot of feedback um mm. uh, but from yes. on your episode it would be great to share that um and maybe us discuss yeah. it a little bit yeah so i tend to like to talk a lot at work <laughs> and so i was going around asking people about so you think uh doctors should learn how to code and like you guys had mentioned in your podcast not the coding in the hospital <laughs> with um a patient in harm. And then I had someone go, oh, you mean like billing? So when we bill, it's called code. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, no, not even that. Um, and I will tell you, it was surprising. I had one, one of my really close friends um, goes, no, I don't think you should learn how to do that. That's a waste of time. Um, and then somebody that Josh and I worked very closely with who is a really smart person. Uh, great person does a lot of evidence-based practice uh, work um she was like yeah my family thinks it's you guys should concentrate more on being doctors not on learning how to code that's a waste of time let somebody else do it which by the way her husband her husband is a a programmer and he's the one that provided some of that feedback and it was like well should we learn how to do surgery on your pancreas that that argument is just I know, right? Yeah, yeah. That is just crazy. Like that, that is the first response that most people have. But it, right. And you said this in the podcast so well, I'm not even going to try and repeat it. Um, but that argument just is totally invalid. You know, we're not saying, I think, in this, that all doctors should become professional software developers. I think, you know, th- that's not what this means. It, it simply means, you know, Im- improving in a more in-depth, in-depth way IT literacy to know what is possible and, and how to communicate. Um, and, and besides, if you want to learn how to do something, you know, why shouldn't you? Exactly. And, and why, yeah. I mean, we don't tell, like, I don't tell a patient family if they have, you know, a bone infection, not to go read the internet hmm. to learn about a bone infection. 
what, what if, I mean, if we think that doctors are completely infallible, right? If, if, my, if I take my child in to see a pediatrician and they tell them they have something and then they tell them wrong, you think I'm going to keep my mouth shut and not tell them that? Well, of course I'm a doctor. But what if a family came in and said that because they learned it? I don't see any reason. I mean, we're not – that's why it, 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 made, it, it got me a little fired up, I, I will say. <laughs> I um, completely agree. Because I felt like you, know, you should learn. But I, I think with, with due respect to that feedback, there, it's important to remember that – and you guys obviously have much more experience uh, doing coding and programming than we do. But it's important to remember that coding and programming are – it's a complicated field. Mm. And you're not going to be able to write the next Twitter or Facebook from, you know, doing Code Academy or, you know, watching lynda.com videos. But none of us said that's what we wanted to do. No, but I think – I just think that that's really, you know, a good, a good programmer is invaluable in designing and architecting an infrastructure for, a, you know, a program. Yeah. And I, I just think you – yeah, you need but, to keep that in mind. No, I completely agree. But that's also why I think that as to be a good physician, you also have to keep it in mind that a family or a patient might learn something that you don't know and that that's okay to be open to that. And that, and that is, I think, uh, a quality that as physicians we need to have. And so for me, you know, I, I try – mind you, I try. There's times when I don't do a good job. I try to keep an open mind. When someone brings up something I've never heard of, though I might think it's absolutely crazy, I try to say, okay, let me see if that has anything to that. Um, and someone can bring that up to you. And if you are so egotistical when a family says that to you because you're the doctor and they're the family and you can't look into it, then you might be actually doing more harm than good. And that's why I think the flip side also is there, that it doesn't hurt us as physicians or us as clinicians or any type of medical providers to understand something because, heck, you never know. I might be able to tell Ed over there who obviously was a physician, hey, I think you're doing something wrong with that CSS code. What about this? I might teach him something. Yeah. Right? I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to, you know, I, I, I would be 100% open to that. I'd, I'd love to hear from Wai Kiong because I know he loves to play devil's advocate on this issue. Uh, no, I wasn't going to, but I, th- I, well, I wanted <laughs> But I guess what I think there is a there is actually a historical um, perspective to all this. So I know we went on a lot about how IT does not work in our hospitals and things. But I think it's fair to say that in UK anyway, that in the primary care sector and the general pra- practitioner sector, over ninety nine percent of practices in this hos- in this um, country is paperless or incredibly paper light. It's also worth mentioning that the leading provider of the software system to the GPs was initially coded by doctors and that the system and the company is still run by these same people. So there's something to be... So you say, you know, you're not going to write the next Facebook, you're not going to write the next Twitter, but, you know, it might start something to, that gets towards something like that. So so... That's you know, one thing that's worth that saying. Is, that is so important. And, and I, I'd like to, um, this, as not as a way of publicity, but just share my experiences that I had last weekend. So I ran, I ran a brief course um, for, for doctors. It was called Doctors on Rails, which is a play on a, a major web framework called Ruby on Rails. Um, and it basically took, I took six doctors. I put them in my flat because I could only get six people and I couldn't afford the venue, a venue <laughs> for it. Uh, I put them in my flat and we taught them 
web development from scratch in two days, right, starting right at the beginning with you've got some text, you've got your CV as a doctor and you want to put that on the web. How do you add some HTML to that? How do you put CSS to that? And then how do you put it on the web? And the second day, we actually built an electronic patient health record. We got each person to build a basic electronic patient health record. Um, and the amazing thing was, okay, there were problems and, you know, it was challenging for, for, for some of them. They, they you know, they, they found it, they didn't get it often immediately, but they, you know, but what was so amazing and which really drove this issue home to me was how, as we were going along, each of them was looking at the little project we were doing and was saying, oh, I could build a system like this to solve this problem that I have. Mm. I could build a system like this to solve this problem that I have. Oh, couldn't I build this thing? And it was amazing. Like the enthusiasm, once they just had, they, they got over that initial barrier of coders and doctors and suddenly realized that actually I can do something. The innovation, you know, and the ideas that were coming were just amazing. And some of the feedback we had just said, well, I, I never knew that I could do something, you know, mm. build something like that in such a short period of time and get started. And of course, and this happened with Emis, you know, the original doctors wrote the code um, and it worked and they started using it. But of course, eventually yep. the real software developers came in, ripped it apart and built it up again. Mm. Um, but what is so wonderful about IT now and the openness of software is that you can build something like an electronic, a very, very basic electronic patient health record, which actually may end up being better than the one you're currently using, <laughs> in, in, with very little knowledge. And you can just give it a go, do what we call in programming a spike, you know, just, just, just hack away at something, you know, and, and try and put something together to see, to see what you can do. Um, and that's j just as much about IT literacy uh, for doctors as it is just about the openness of software and the amazing resources for learning that are available now online to learn these things you know three years ago i couldn't write a line of code i didn't know any html or whatever um and now i run a software company you know and some people may say that's irresponsible whatever blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> but i still get contracts and i still deliver systems that i hope are mm. are in the best interest of of patients and of the doctors who use them the two biggest counter arguments to doctors learning to code that i've come across and i don't know if if, if you guys have had similar things um is the one uh, is where everyone says, well, do you want me to do a hip operation on your mom? And he goes, <laughs> no, no, not really. And the other one is, and I think you guys brought it up, certainly in the last episode and just now, is that shouldn't you be concentrating on other things? Shouldn't you be concentrating on doing what your job is supposed to be and treating patients rather than just playing around with trying to pretend you're a programmer? Yeah, and even worse than that, they often say, um, oh, we've wasted, you know, all this money's been wasted on your education and you're now yeah. coding for a living. Yeah. Um, which drives me insane. That yeah, and I love that, and I, I love that, that 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 issue comes up. And I really want to pick out something that you that that, uh, that was said in your last episode. So <laughs> I think Josh, you said less and less like a real doctor every day. And I think I think Jason, you should get a you should get a hat made up of you know like a baseball cap with that written on the top because that's a brilliant <laughs> phrase. But um, but I like that you brought up the issues that. Should because you are medically trained, and do you have a moral obligation to treat patients and to do it to the best of your ability and spend all of your time on that and not diverge from it? And I guess Ed, we had loads of conversations in the past, and and you know, I was sort of glad to be uh, your friend talking to you whilst you were making the decision to move on to what you're doing, what you're doing, uh, what you're doing now. But we had loads of conversations around impact that we could have mm. and some of the the things that we used to say i think we were coming from the same point is that 
as a physician, there are only a certain number of hours in each day. And if I do a clinic, I can only really see X number of patients in a clinic. Therefore, I can only really have an impact on so many patients a day. Whereas if I were to do something else like programming or public health or something like that or research, which is what I'm doing now, I can potentially have a much greater impact. And I find you guys, Jason and Josh, really interesting because you both come from different backgrounds. You seem to have this kind of like reverse um, impact triangles in your career. So, Josh, you were public health before, is that right? Yeah, I went to a school of public health and have a master's and then research for a few years. And then now you're becoming a physician, whereas Jason, you've kind of done the opposite. You were a physician and now you're going into having a much greater impact for a larger number of people doing what you're doing now with with research and the health safety stuff, right? Correct. That's absolutely right. So uh, I always find that really interesting and kind of the arguments that that ed and i were throwing around when we were thinking you know about uh, all of the, what we could do with it is that we could have a much greater impact on many more people if we were to do something like that than if we were to just stand physicians so that's my counter argument to someone saying well shouldn't you be concentrating on patient care and learning what you need to learn for that so i you know i, I would you know i think you're absolutely right and and i think you know what happens here, I, I think if I would put myself into the shoes of people that are outside the medical field, what I tend to tend to feel that they think is that if you say you're a doctor, it means you go to a clinic or you go to the hospital and you see patients all day. Yeah. Um, and if you tell them that, no, no, that's not what I do, then there's this question that, are you really a doctor? Mm-hmm. And then I think there is a, another group that are in the medical field who believe that unless you see patients, then why are you a doctor? Why did you even go down this road? It gets at that your guys' discussion of how do you make that biggest impact. Um, and, and I get back to that. I, I, you know, I think now where I'm in my career where I've kind of turned into this administrator, and, and for many people that's kind of like a bad word in the medical field, right? Like if you're an administrator – Oh my goodness, that means you're wearing a suit and you're not helping, you're not actually seeing a patient. Yeah. But I, I think that's, that's a tragedy if we treat those people that way. Because who, kind, who do you want to kind of understand, you know, the, the people that are being taken care of? Don't you want some of them to be, also understand the other side of it? Can't they have a great impact? And, and our episode last week kind of got into this. And, you know, and, and I had, again got some feedback suggesting that well you know maybe that's not the best thing that you guys are thinking you can do everything and 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 i think that could be valid right sometimes as doctors we think we can do everything but whether you're a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist or, or something i think we we can be benefited by any of us that feels that we can have a greater impact by taking our knowledge of the patient and taking care of patients and putting it into these other modalities that impact healthcare, whether it's technology, whether it's you know being an administrator helping run an organization with with things, I think those are all important. Especially when we're faced with kind of the issues that we were talking about earlier with the Escape Fire movie. I mean, almost we have a responsibility to be engaged in these wider issues because if we're not, if physicians are not engaged, then who have we got advocating for these kind of things? Who have we got shouting for the patient? Who have we got shouting for the the, the doctors? 
essentially people who don't understand either of those two worlds, and that's not good. And I I think it takes a really special person to be able to understand if you come from outside the medical field to understand the whole, you know, all issues. And I would say that if anybody, you know, if you guys are read blogs, the not running a hospital blog by Paul Levy is a great blog of a, of a gentleman who, you know, who was the CEO of Beth Israel Dinkins hospital and, and did a, a remarkable job there. He ha- he has that ability, but I yeah. think it takes special people to do that. And I think otherwise, if we really want to own our healthcare systems and own that, I think it has to come from the people that have taken care of the patients. Well, and I think that that's always been true, you know, in terms of uh, policy and getting physicians involved in the policy discussions. Mm-hmm. And as you guys said, advocating for the patient, why would that be any less true when it comes to developing our technical tools that we use day in and day out and that we're relying more and more on every single day. Yeah. How's your so, app, your app going for sports, Jason? Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I, not very well. <laughs> so, I, I need to come to coding school. Coding school, yeah. <laughs> you need to go to the doctors on rails. Uh, no, I've already got I've put it into the budget for next year. <laughs> so let me bring this kind of bring this all back with a concrete example and then uh you know give play a little bit of devil's advocate. So we're yes. talking about um he's good at this by the way. We're talking about, you know, how how this technology could potentially, you know, impact, you know, patient care and improve uh improve healthcare. I'll give you guys a really good concrete example. Every morning, go into the hospital, print out a list of the patients currently on our service, oh. and somebody. <laughs> yeah, and this is this is really this just is really that word fantastic. print. Oh, no. This is really fantastic because it comes all the way back to you guys talking about your uh, patient lists, and so I, you know the medical. The, I'm with two other medical students and three residents, and we all do it. And at some point. Somebody was smart enough with the Epic system, at least the one that KU uses, to develop a quote-unquote rounding report, which is supposed to print out all the critical information that the team needs to go on rounds that morning. The problem is I don't know who designed it, but it is, it's terrible. It doesn't give you all the information that you need. And so the entire team prints out their list, and then we sit there with our specific patients writing down their CBC, their uh, chemistry panel, and then other miscellaneous tests from the EMR. I mean, it's in the EMR. On the computer, right. Yeah, it's right there. You take the information on the computer, taking a printout from another program and writing it on the piece of paper. Oh, the sad thing is it's all the same program. (laughs) It's all epic. It's all epic. It's all epic. It's an epic fail. Yeah, that, so, that's an epic fan. <laughs> that is an oxymoron, right? <laughs> like, and it's just. Uh... So here, okay. So here, I think is a really good concrete example. If we could amend that report, have a well-designed report there, and I would still think that we would print it out because at this point, it's it's much easier to do that and take notes on it by hand while you're walking around than trying to create an electronic system for doing that. But let's just say we could get that report to give us all the vital information that we needed. That means that one to two hours in the morning, less would be spent on the team sitting in front of a computer. They could go out and see their patients, spend more time with their patients, potentially have the ability to go see their patients 
you know, again in the afternoon to see how they're doing. Uh, and that's, that's a great example because the, the, the engineering challenge there is very small. I mean, oh, absolutely. Because, you know, the data is there. You're just saying, give me this bit of data, this bit of data, and collate it in this document. Um, exactly. And th- that's a great example of how a small change could make a huge difference. Exactly. I mean, yeah. imagine saying, right, rather than spending an extra hour in the clinic every single day seeing another one or two patients, right. I could give every physician, every doctor in the hospital, another one or two hours. I would make the argument that our health record systems have made us less efficient. Yeah. That yeah, we now spend way more time writing notes. You know, I think attendings have lost their minds because they used to be able to run right through and be home before the trainees. Now they have to wait on the trainees to get their notes to them so that they can sign them. And so then they're there a few hours later, which drives everyone crazy, right? Because I should be the one that leaves first. But <laughs> there's an important distinction to be made here. And it's not, it's not because they're electronic. It's because they're poorly designed. Mm. Well, no. It, well, it, it, the whole system of how it was designed to but do it was crazy. It, it doesn't make any sense. How do you make it where it's efficient? See, all the all of the all the people that would like to go back to the paper records think that it's because it's electronic. Somehow that because we made it digital, that's the problem. Problem's not that it's digital; it's that it's bad. It's just bad. Well, exactly. And it goes back to what Kai Wong said earlier. It says, "Well, how are you going to make this better so that people will do it? You know, it to use them. It's because if we can get off of this, everything's bad." Yeah, and you know, well, all that mentality. The, but all the healthcare systems or our health record systems are bad, then I think we would get somewhere. This this so. problem is very pervasive. So one of the great things that I think the problem with these badly designed systems is they create physici- physician cynicality with technology. Mm. So what actually happens is then when you come along with a system that is better, people make an assumption that it's just like every other system. And exactly. I, I found this, I've, I've built in the, in the open source arena, um, systems for patient handover and thing like things like that very very focused on the clinician i've gone to present them uh, to groups of physicians and i just got stonewalled completely you know and and that's because they just see it as yet another system i need to learn i need to go on a training course it's going to be rubbish there's a huge amount of cynicism and that is one of the real dangers of of these systems is they create this digital cynicism yeah i agree that's true. I, you know i yep yeah, true go ahead sorry no, but I was going to say, have you ever walked into the Apple store and seen the little table that's like a foot and a half high? Have you ever seen the foot and a half yeah. high table when there's a couple of beanbags around there and there's three or four kids either using an iMac or an iPad tapping away, intuitively tapping away on these very well-designed software programs? You don't need to be a genius. You know, My mum works on iPad day in, day out. You don't need to be a genius to work these things. They're just intuitive because they're well-designed. Are you suggesting your mother might not be able to do that? <laughs> I think my mother, if she ever, if she ever sat down on the foot and a half t- uh, high table beanbag, she wouldn't be able to get up. But I'm sure if she were there, she'd be able to tap on the. Uh, she'd be able to tap on the the iPad. I, I gave. The thing is, I gave my um, 93 year old grandmother an iPad for Christmas, and I I gave it to her. I I um, she goes, oh, this is very nice. What is it? Did she think it was like a coaster or something? So, I think so. She thought it was like a picture frame, I think. Um, and <laughs> I plugged it in. I, I charged it up. I gave it to her. And I just, I wanted, it was like a little, exp- I love doing this. I love experimenting on family members. 
um, in technology, obviously, not medicine. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, I just gave it to her and I wanted to see what she'd do. And I'd, I'd pre-installed a solitaire because I know she loves to play solitaire. On, uh, she plays it on, you know, on, a, on a, a table on her lap with cards. Um, so I pre-installed this app for her. And 30 seconds later, she was playing solitaire on mm. the device, wow. you know, um, and, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was just, it was, it was amazing, but it, it brought with it some sadness as well, because I realized that, you know, there is so much opportunity, you know, we're, there's such an opportunity to here to, 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 to provide these interactive things, these interactive tools to improve things. And we're just not, not doing it in healthcare. The, so, uh, the, sorry, help. sorry to interrupt there. Um, I guess you know it's all been quite doom and gloom in terms of uh, what, from what we've been talking about electronic patient records. But just to say that there are you know, places that are doing this well, and there are different models. Talking about clinicians that can code, I know I talk about this guy quite a lot, but you know we've got a big eye hospital in London which is building their own electronic health record system mainly focused in ophthalmology, but it was designed by a medical director who can code, who is now, and this has now been taken up in several countries in, in the UK and also abroad, and they're co-developing this, very clinician-focused, um, easy to use, no repetition, uh, collecting data at a point of care and reusing it in theatre and during follow-up. And all this is being tested in an agile way. You can go to the website and actually use the modules that are being built. What's it and called, Wykeon? It's called Open Eyes. Um, and I, we, we, he, we're going to get him on the show to come and talk about, you know, why he decided to, to do this and why his hospital has given him those millions of pounds to spend to, de to develop this. And I think, you know, that model might actually work really, really well. So there are people doing good things. And this one of the few systems which I have seen and played with, which have, you know, really gave me some hope that there is some hope in this, this field. Yeah. Wei tell me who was OpenEye started by? Who, who, who's behind it? So OpenEyes is started by uh, Bill Aylward. He's an ophthalmologist. So um, he's a physician, right? He's a physician, uh, yes. And um, he was also medical director of that particular hospital, um, but he also codes. And he started building this himself. And he built the, the very basic thing of it. And now, as you say, Ed, it's now taken over by the professionals. But he provides the guiding light. He provides the management of it and how it is governed. And if you see the system and use the system, you will see how amazing it, it enhances the care. It enhances the conversation with patients. And it also collects quality data and it collects, um, you know, uh, process data without having to duplicate any data entry. It's and that's the principles which drives him. And they, they and came along to one of the hack days. Um, yeah. So we have, we, uh, I don't know, um, I'm, I know that, that uh, you guys in the States, um, there's sort of quite a big hack for health movement there as well. Um, but we have one over here as well, which actually Waikyong is uh, fairly deeply involved in. Um, and they came along to that uh, with their Open Eyes software. And they built in a weekend something called Open Heart which was mm. essentially what I saw as, as a scaffold for, you know, a, a, an amazing um, electronic patient health record. You should have seen the, the sort of the history and examination pro forma that they put on the screen. 
you know, really interactive with not, not like most of the electronic health record systems have, which is just, you know, drop down boxes for absolutely everything. But, you know, almost you know, hundreds of them to do an individual, we call it a patient clerking here. I'm not sure what you guys call it over there. But this thing, you know, it just had, you know, it had element, you know, pit, a drawing of the lungs and you could put crackles on. It had, you know, wow. it, it, you know, it, you could just drag elements on to annotate diagrams of various parts of the body. Um, it was, it, it, it blew my mind. Yeah, that's how it should be. Yeah. And you know, then they so are actually... Better. They're actually creating a whole framework. It's a bit like a software development kit that Apple provides. They're creating a software development kit so that anybody in the world could build modules for it. And because it's, it's, it's open source, you can choose to do what you want with it, of course, and what you want to actually deploy. But um, And so he, he's got his mind and his vision quite focused. So he's gone from a full-time clinician, and now he's now he's, he has stopped practicing ophthalmology. He is in his 50s, so he told me that the amount of work that he has to do to make this work, you know, he can't do clinical work anymore. But I think he's had over 20 years of operating experience, and now he's going to focus all his energy into this. Exactly. So that feeds back to what we were saying before. I mean, this guy has had such an impact on patient care for, mm. th- you know, for thousands of people. Mm. And, you know, he's he's doing that by paradoxically not seeing patients mm. and not concentrating on on his patient care he's concentrating on how to change the system because he knows that a little bit more and i feel that we're talking about digital literacy i mean yes you need to know the tools to be able to do your job but you know this is this is where digital literacy will really take us and we don't need to really even invent anything new we're doing the podcast today over skype and our hospital, I mean, hospitals in the UK have multidisciplinary team meetings. And traditionally, they were mainly meetings around people who had cancer. And it was a meeting between uh, the people that are looking after the patient, uh, maybe surgeons as well, and pathologists to try and work out the best strategy for managing people. But there are so many chronic diseases these days that multidisciplinary team meetings are becoming commonplace and it's a forum for communication but there's five of us now talking across the atlantic over skype and there's no need to have a multidisciplinary team meeting that's only confined to a certain time uh, and a certain space within a certain hospital in a country you can have an mdt that that is is potentially global at any time during the day and it doesn't need to be you know live so Technology that already exists needs to be brought into hospitals because I can't get onto Skype in, in my hospital at the moment. I don't know if you guys can in America. Uh, I couldn't get onto the internet most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh has Google Fiber and it's down, so it doesn't work here either. So that, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, I think that's actually a really good point to wrap up maybe. Um, this has been an absolutely amazing podcast. I've, I've um, Sorry, uh, Stephen and Wai Kiong, but I've enjoyed this one the most so far. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, Josh, this has been the best one. I, I agree. Sorry. I think so. <laughs> um, it's been really, really great um, having uh, both Joss and uh, Jason on, on, on this podcast and just the amazing insight which you're able to bring. And I think it really mm. shows how much we can actually learn f- from each other, um, you know, and actually how similar the problems we face are, even though often we think that they're not sometimes. Um so I know I'd, I'd love to do this. You know, we must sort out of follow up or something at some some point in the future. Um, I'll put up all the. I promise I'll put up all the show notes with all these uh, links. <laughs> I've got I've got about yeah, but 
20, 20 tabs open in my browser at the moment. <laughs> but can you fees like pipe that over to the guys in America so they can put it on their website because <laughs> it's yeah. to be revamped. I've first. actually just noticed that uh, that uh, the uh, Medicine IO uh, podcast uh, uses the same Squarespace theme as my blog. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was something familiar about it. <laughs> No, we appreciate it, guys. This has been great, and we do look forward to doing this again, and and especially maybe doing it in person. Mm, Absolutely, yeah, that, that would be that would be fantastic. So be let's wrap up by saying um, some goodbyes. We usually just do a round robin of goodbyes. It usually ends really badly. Um, so <laughs> we'll just start with the uh, l- goodbye from the medicine team, IO team. Uh, goodbye, and appreciate it. Have a great uh, week and great time in uh, London. Great discussion. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks. It's been absolutely great. Um, this is Ed signing off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye, everyone.